listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. Right, it's January, so we're both overcoming uh, or getting over colds, so uh, bear with us with our voices uh, for the time being. It's just that time of year, I think, isn't it? Yeah, so, that's right. I quite like having a fruity voice in January. Yeah, yeah, we'll sound very, uh, very deep uh, today, although let's see what the content's like. Um... Things that have happened at the start of the year, we, we mentioned in the in the last episode uh, about things that were going to happen. We mentioned moon missions. There are going to be a lot of moon missions. Uh, it's the end of January. We've had two already. Um, sadly, not quite as successful as they might have been. Let's start off with, I guess, the first one was Peregrine, which is the ones we talked about, these uh, commercial missions. So it was run by Astrobiotic, uh, which is this company uh, in America trying to do a... a, a a robotic mission to the moon to go and land uh, and do some experiments and so on. Um, uh, the launch went very well, uh, uh, but that's when it all started to, to fall apart. The lander itself developed a fuel leak, which is, um, I mean, it kind of needs the fuel, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. It was um, this propellant leak and the press office of... Uh, Astrobotic, not astrobiotic, that makes it sound like a yogurt. Yeah. <laughs> astrobotic. <laughs> astrobotic, sorry, like yeah. Robotic, but astro. Um, uh, is, uh, has been saying that uh, actually it's a, you know, there was successes in this mission because um, in any space mission there are risks and uh, although we lost control of the, the system, we managed to gain control so it headed instead of just off into space and became space junk, we returned it to Earth, and it became Earth junk instead, <laughs> and polluted the oceans. In, um, uh, but, you know, that's, um, uh, it's a good sign. It's also, it would have been the first lunar mission, to, successful lunar mission for, I don't know, 50 years or something. From the US. From yeah, the US, yeah. yeah. Um, and even though it's mostly a commercial enterprise, that's still something significant, and... Uh, we're still waiting for things like the Artemis mission to to send people, but uh, this was very much the first step in in that process. It was going to send experiments to the moon. It's just a shame it uh, it didn't work. But you know, um, space exploration is is really paved with these type of failures, and uh, and it seems shocking, but it is necessary to to learn from these mistakes. It's much more public now than it was back in say the nineteen sixties when the the first space race was happening with lunar missions and development of that. And, and even later on in the 80s, I guess, the, the exact reasons why things things failed. There was controversy in the 90s with a lot of those Mars missions from NASA that, that actually from lots of countries, in fairness, that, that, that failed for a decade. People tried to do faster, better, cheaper in the 1990s. And my one concern is, is, that, is this a, re, a rerun of that? That by going to commercial enterprise, you can do things more agile in an agile way, which is probably a good thing. But are you essentially trying to do faster, better, cheaper? It's more of a scattergun approach. Was we'll get ten companies launching ten satellites, uh, and and if seven of them work, then then you know overall that's a win. Um, it's it's also quite strange that um, it it's really a, a technical definition to say that this was an external company launching this with oversight from NASA because NASA has always employed external companies yeah. to build various different components for their space industry. Um, yeah, NASA didn't build the space shuttle, right? Yeah, that's that right. <laughs> yeah, private company. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they did have you know large contracts with uh, Boeing and um, Lockheed and people like that in the past, and now we're seeing a lot more smaller companies that are actually don't have expertise in um, in aerospace. 
they don't really have expertise in anything actually they're normally fairly small companies and that's what makes them a lot cheaper and also a lot riskier yeah so it's a different approach to space flight space flight as i say it's, I, I say i have a concern with that model but maybe that's unfounded maybe this is a perfectly valid model i certainly have concerns with it if you start sending people on these missions because seven out of ten successes with people on board is obviously not really acceptable yeah uh but for robotic missions when uh, the end result is you get a a, a you know a ton of aluminium falling into the ocean is you know, not ideal, but not the uh, not the end of the world quite yet. Yeah, and it's something that's done been done before quite yeah. a lot. So the other mission that that uh, launched uh, in January was was called Slim. It was a Japanese mission, um, uh, and uh, they called it the Lunar Sniper because the idea was it was going to land in a very very precise way. And in fact, Japan have now become the fifth ever country to successfully soft land a spacecraft on the moon. It's quite standard, I think, with all these missions, only five who've ever succeeded in uh, in doing that. So that's the US, of course, Russia, the Soviet Union, had a, a lot of missions uh, to the moon. Uh, China have done it. India have done it with Chandrayaan-3. Uh, and now uh, Japan with uh, with SLIM. And the, the groundbreaking thing was that this, this landing system was essentially automated. Instead of saying, oh, somewhere within this sort of couple of kilometre wide area, it's going to land within 100 metre uh, accuracy, which, which is quite important for, for the future. If you said we want to send a supply mission with some critical supplies to this, this, I don't know, this uh, habitation on the moon, you don't want to be two kilometres away from it or on top of it. You want to be you know, a couple of hundred metres away. That all went, it seems broadly very well apart from it sounds like it's facing the wrong way <laughs> yeah well um the in, in space missions uh we don't really like sending nukes up into space no. or um uh little uh, nuclear reactors rather than nuclear weapons yes. um so uh we rely on solar and battery systems mostly and <clears throat> For solar panels to work, they really need to face the sun. Kind of, it's a good, it's a good idea, yeah. <laughs> so if they get covered in dust, they're not going to work. If they face away from the sun or partially away from the sun, which is the, the case in in Slim's uh, particular case, uh, that's a problem. And so um, they do have some hope that Slim will come back to life. That it's been powered down and it's currently on uh, on hibernate mode uh, similar to your laptop's battery yeah. and uh, so everything is is ticking over all the essentials are ticking over none of the science things are ticking over uh, with the aim that if it can get a trickle of sunlight then it'll get a, a critical battery life and then things will be able to boot up again yeah, and how long that will be for is hard to say because yeah. presumably then the sun, where it's, it's, I think its solar panels are facing west, which for where it is on the moon is, is not the right direction. Uh, and there's probably an interesting discussion about how you do east and west on the moon, but it's sim yes, similar to the right. Earth. But you know, yeah. Um, uh, so the, uh, fingers crossed that will that will start again. But I mean, in terms of a successful landing, apart from the orientation not being quite right, actually, I don't know whether that's part of this automated system or whether. Uh, that's something that they they misprogrammed or or whether they just didn't think to check that i'm not whether it's the angle of the spacecraft i'm not 100 percent sure exactly why the orientation is not quite right but broadly um that's again a success uh a success story um albeit not a raring success that uh you might hope with a um 
with a lot of these missions. It did do. It did deploy some little rovers though. It had these bouncing, hopping ro- little tiny mm. well, rovers. Is probably a weird. It had this sort of yeah. ball shaped thing that was going to hop around. Please, flea, yeah. <laughs> uh, so a few interesting ideas there uh, as well. So fingers crossed, it wakes up in the future and they can do something, uh, something with it. The um, the uh, you said earlier that it was a the fifth country to do a soft landing. And of course, there have been crash landings, which is the opposite, on the moon uh, for a variety of different reasons, yeah. some intentional and some not. Um, there was um, uh, some particularly famous ones that, um, um, uh, well, obviously, the uh, some of the early moon landings were crash landings, um, uh, particularly some of the, the Russian missions did crash. Um, but there have been some that have been deliberately crash landings, particularly in the poles of the moon, to, to, to see what the water content mm. of those poles were. Uh, and there is, it's uh, a crash landing on the moon is not governed by anybody. I think we may have mentioned this last time. Because yeah, the, so the moon is... The moon is, is international, or, or rather the opposite of international. It's not owned by anybody. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't. You can never buy or stake a claim to a portion of the moon by putting a flag in it or selling it or, or anything else. Whatever the TV cameras say. Yeah, that's right. So if you did have very de- delicate science experiments going on on the moon, someone could just crash something into it. Um, yeah. Because nobody can own part of the moon, and there's nothing to stop them. So then, it's a it's a very interesting, almost philosophical dilemma of how do you uh, make sure that private companies don't launch things that could intentionally or unintentionally crash into a moon base. Mm. There was there was another aspect of this which I read about was quite um I wasn't aware of. So the Peregrine mission had planned to take up uh, on board or did take up on board uh, some ashes some cremated remains of some people. Uh and the idea was it was obviously planned to soft land on the moon. But there are in some cultures the moon is a, a a very sacred place, a very sacred object. And there are big concerns that I think it was the Navajo Nation, North America, big concerns with uh, the appropriateness of doing that. So when NASA did this, I think the one of the lunar prospector landers uh, in the, that would have been the 60s, I guess, um, landed on the moon, they uh, they objected. And NASA said, fine, next time we do this, we'll, we'll consult with you. Um, because obviously there are one... One group saying we don't want to do this and one group saying we do want to do this. Who's to say who's right? Well, you have to discuss it. Uh, and and it sounds like in this case, they didn't discuss yes. it. And maybe this is because it was a private company and not yeah. NASA. I don't know. But there's the, some bits not being joined up. So it's, it's a, the moon is a complicated object because yeah. it's not owned by anyone. Yeah. And like you say, it's um, uh, sacred and in some cultures a deity. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really very complex. Mm. And... Uh, Archaeoastronomy, a history of astronomy, and cultural astronomy are fields that are poorly understood, but but getting better yeah. uh, at, at present. There are there are all sorts of implications of building telescopes on on sacred mountains, like in Hawaii um, and and other places. Uh, so, um, just like the you know the remains of of people are are in some senses sacred. That's Places are also sacred yeah. to different cultures. So from the, the moon to Mars, and uh, one that is uh, very much a success story, uh, this is the Ingenuity helicopter. So this is the tiny little helicopter that landed along with the Perseverance rover uh, a couple of years ago. 
um, and uh, was designed to do a few flights um, on the surface of Mars and has just completed its 72nd flight on yeah. the surface of Mars, which is, which is uh, bear with my maths, more than a few. Yeah. Um, uh, they, they lost contact with it briefly a little while ago, but they've, they've thankfully got it back again. This, this is an amazing Yeah, thing, really, really quite amazing that this... I think this thing must have a battery life that's better than my laptop, um, <laughs> uh, and certainly better than Slim. Um, so uh, it really shows that it really in the in the spirit of of Martian landings uh, of of um, devices of robotic devices, particularly um, the rovers like Curiosity, have really outstripped their lifespan. By a huge amount. Now, it could be argued that it was quite conservative, saying that it was going to have a couple of flights. Um, and really, that could have been considered the worst case scenario, that they, they have their primary scientific mission. Uh, and if you can achieve all of your objectives in that, then the m mission is its success. Yeah. Um, but the nice-to-haves then are not guaranteed or not yeah. you know, not required to say it's a success but this thing is tiny as you said it's more like a little drone and it's really funny to think that you can have a helicopter on mars because obviously to have a helicopter you have to have an atmosphere and of yeah. course mars does have an atmosphere we, we often forget that it does have an atmosphere it's very tenuous it's mostly carbon dioxide but it does have an atmosphere it's about one percent the density of the earth so i think from, yeah. from maybe something like that so yeah very very tenuous but but there's just enough there to fly a small little uh, craft and it's, it's it's rotor blades uh, uh they they're they might seem oversized compared to what you'd expect if you measure an earth drone a drone that might, someone flies over the park or whatever other uses of drones on earth i realize now but <laughs> let's go with the ones over, over the, the park. park um then uh um the, the, the propellers are, are tiny little things. You might have a, a something that's the size of a tabletop, but it's got a few kind of you know ten centimeter diameter propellers. The Ingenuity rovers propellers, sorry, the Ingenuity helicopters propellers, are much bigger compared to the the body that the spacecraft the helicopter than, than, than they are on Earth because of that that less that that very tenuous uh, atmosphere. But an important fact-finding mission because NASA have plans in 2020, well, the, the end of this decade, I think exactly which year, to launch the Dragonfly mission to Titan, uh, which is going to be a much bigger, uh, I think, quadcopter that's going to go uh, land on Titan and then fly around a bit and land to other places. So uh, I, Titan's a very different place to Mars, much, much colder uh, and, and a thick atmosphere, th actually thicker than the Earth, denser than the Earth's uh, atmosphere. But the the principle of flying a spacecraft on Mars, sorry, on another body, um, and remotely, you know, you, you don't fly this with a joystick. Um, from yeah, Earth. the time delay is just far too much to be able to do yeah. this. So it, you really have to plan your route and have intelligent software to, to cope with, with different things, gusts and things like that, yeah. uh, actually on board, um, because, yeah, you can't. It's not like piloting a drone on the Earth where you have line of sight to it or even remote sight on it. The, the um, Titan is a very interesting place, obviously a moon of Saturn, um, the second largest moon in the solar system. And uh, it's got this thick atmosphere um, around it and it appears to look very, very Earth-like underneath mm. that. And uh, it would be interesting to see if, if Titan could be uh, a place where life may have existed or may have formed microbial life. Mm. Uh, at some point in the past, or maybe even still there. It's unlikely, but... 
Well, yeah, it has rivers. It has, this is a diamond. It has rivers. It has oceans. It has yeah. lakes. It has rain. It has clouds, but they're just not water. They're yes. made of hydrocarbons, so methane and ethane. But there are theories where maybe, as you say, maybe microbial life could evolve and thrive in those uh, in their, those environments. There was um, there was a, an, a comic series called XKCD. There is a comic series called XKCD, and uh, the author of, of that, Randall Munro, did a, a series of um, I think what if things. So if you go and look for XKCD, what if you'll find one. Uh, about could you fly on another planet? And Titan is the one place in the solar system, he determined, where with suitably large wings, as in, you know, wings a person could pick up, you could fly on Titan because the gravity is low enough that the density of the atmosphere is high enough. Oh, wow. That you could so flap a person, could, so a person could go and flap their arms with, you know, big wings attached. Yeah. Uh, which you obviously couldn't do that on the, <laughs> on Earth um, to, to fly that, which... Um, which I think is cool, although completely unrelated to yeah. sending a helicopter. <laughs> let's move on from missions. Let's go out into into deep space. Uh, and um, some of the largest, well, let's call them structures for the moment, largest structures uh, in the universe. Um, these aren't solid structures. These are groups of galaxies that appear to be, you know, in, in a pattern, in an arrangement that looks like they're, they've been put there in a, not in, by some um, you know supreme being but uh, put there by the physics and the, the how the universe has evolved so this one particular case which is a, a ring of galaxies discovered uh, by a, a PhD student at the University of Central Lancashire uh, Alexia Lopez uh, discovered this this uh, ring of galaxies that's you know millions of light years millions of light years across um, and a, a giant arc nearby as well. So these structures of galaxies, yeah, they're not a, a solid structure. Um, there's question marks, I guess, as to whether they're, whether they're real enough, but it's there's big question marks about how to interpret these as well. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, as you say, calling them structures is uh, a, a misnomer because a structure implies that they're connected in some way. Now, gravity is connecting them, um, but I think that's, we're talking about something that is not not only millions, but it's 1.3 billion light years yeah. across this this ring. And there's um, uh, a small number, relatively speaking, of these things. There's uh, I can't remember the. So seven, this is the seventh largest, I think. Oh uh, yeah, that's right. So there's not many things this size in the, the, this size. Now whether whether they are actually connected or whether there is some reason that we are seeing these in an arrangement preferentially to just the random background of galaxies that are out there I'm not convinced so they could be uh, and what I mean by that is that this appears to be a ring because these are the visible these are the ones that have been detected in this yeah. survey but there may be inside the ring and outside the ring other galaxies that are um, uh, that are not visible because they're obscured in some way um, that they, they're not the same type of galaxy, for example, so they're not shining in whatever type of lights these were looked at. Um, and these are extremely hard to, mm. to detect anyway. So whether this is at the limits of the detectability, so we're only seeing the ones that are above that and we don't see the ones that are just below that, because you'd expect the universe to be the same in all directions. It, it should would, be smooth, yeah, right? Yeah, smooth, yeah. Which which means that roughly if you took a patch of sky um, and counted the number of galaxies in it and took the same size patch of sky in the opposite direction and counted the number of galaxies, you'd expect to see roughly the same number. Mm. Um, and something like this 
appears to be in contrast to that. So that cosmological principle, the universe is kind of the same in every direction you look at and, 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 and every, uh, um, uh, yeah, wherever you look on the sky, uh, as you say, is, is maybe um, uh, conflicts with these, these things. But even in a random structure, you expect patterns to form. If you took a random set of dots and scattered them randomly over a sheet of paper, there's, there's a chance that you'd get a, a ring or a square or, or, straight a, line or a straight line or, yeah. or whatever. Yes, absolutely. The, the cosmic microwave background, which is um, the, the afterglow of the Big Bang, um, has blobs on it when we look at the images resulting from the, the, the way the very early universe evolved. The initials SH are in there, so people <laughs> joke that they're Stephen Hawking's initials and so on. Um, that has weird things where there's a there's a cold there's a bit of the universe is much colder than the the, the the bits around it. It appears to be one half of it is slightly warmer on average than the other half of it. So there's all sorts of things, but they could just be chance. And yeah. so one of the big challenges of this is ruling out whether they're whether they're chance or not. And unfortunately, it's often impossible to say with these. Yeah, you can rule out the chance of this happening if you scattered galaxies around. But um, and it's a different. I mean, chance is. You think of chance as being, you know, random, like the, the toss of a coin. Um, but actually, there are different mathematical models for randomness as well. And then they do have structures in them sometimes. And, and you know, it could just be that, like you say. And actually, we know that galaxies aren't perfectly randomly or truly randomly scattered across the sky because the, the way the very early universe evolved, there were um, essentially sound waves going through the universe, which created these dense bits and less dense bits. So there was a structure. So you do see that galaxies on the larger scales in the universe are clumped together slightly. There are bits that are more dense, bits that are less dense. They're called baryonic acoustic oscillations, if anyone wants to look them up. But these uh, these uh, structures of, of, of galaxies, you do see, just not normally quite on this scale, I think these are the largest ones seen, but uh, that doesn't mean that they're not allowed necessarily. They're just uh, possibly on the edge of what you might... Uh, expect in a you know your sort of communal garden universe I guess yeah so, your box model yeah uh, so let's see I mean this is the seventh largest maybe there'll be uh, there'll be more found uh, as well going to come back uh, to Earth uh, now and um, on the twenty first of January uh, if you were living in near Berlin um, you might have seen a flash in the sky there was quite an exciting uh, event a, a, a fireball across the sky wasn't it yeah it's always exciting when you get something uh from space coming to earth um and uh this month we've had two things yeah. well, probably more than two things but one of them was artificial uh and uh you know the the other one was not um and uh the interesting thing about this fireball it was an asteroid that was about a meter across and it was only detected a very short period before it came through the atmosphere, which sounds terrifying that something was, was only discovered a short period before, but that's only because it's small. And if it's small, it poses very little threat to us. Um, and if it were larger, it would have been seen earlier yeah. and, and therefore would have posed less of a threat. But to, to see these, we don't do this very often. So I think it's the eighth object detected before it hit the Earth. So you get lots where you see a, someone sees a fireball in the sky and then goes, ah, oh, look, there must have been something that went through the the, uh, the atmosphere there, but we never saw it in advance. It's it's very rare to see things uh, in advance of them oh, actually yes. hitting, hitting the Earth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hence there only being eight of them. And thankfully, they've all been small. Yeah. Um, there's nothing very, very large that we've seen in advance uh, that's going to hit the Earth. 
but he's like something a meter across isn't going to do any damage. There might be fragments of it uh, yeah. on the ground somewhere. So you've seen that in in places in, in Africa. I think it was the one over Sudan a few years ago that was obs- predicted and observed, and then bits found in Sudan and Namibia or somewhere uh, that they went and found. Yeah, it really depends on how uh, what what it was made of um, and uh, how it broke up as it came yeah. through the atmosphere as to whether there's anything left. And also, in terms of finding any bits, the kind of terrain it lands on, in, in, in uh, bits of Sudan and Namibia, there's, there's desert, and so if it lands on the top of the sands, then it's easy to find. Antarctica, that's why Antarctica is a good place to look for meteorites. Um, in a, you know, here, in, here in the UK, if a piece of rock fell from the sky and landed in a field, or even by the side of the road, identifying it from the other bits of gravel and rock is, is pretty hard. Yeah, unless it makes a big hole. Then, uh, yeah. yeah. Or the the example that was found uh, near um, it was in Wiltshire a few years ago, where it looked like a bit of charcoal on someone's drive, which obviously wasn't there before. Yeah. The, um, uh, so you do get things like that. So maybe someone will find some fragments of this near near Berlin, but uh, yeah, something that doesn't happen uh, very often. And then finally, um, uh, a satellite that I think is pronounced Xrism. Um, I'm not really yeah, I'm that's not 100% a, I sure. That's... Uh, it's a Japanese X-ray satellite. Uh, which has got a camera and a spectrometer on board and is the next uh, foray of humanity into X-ray astronomy, looking at the highest energetic processes uh, in the uh, in the universe, um, or some of the highest ones at least. Uh, it has uh, it launched uh, late last year, and this is its first light images towards the end of its commissioning phase, where they check it's working and it's going to go into its, some of its early science and then be uh, released to the astronomical community uh, later this year if all is well. Um, and uh, X-ray astronomy is something that uh, we don't necessarily hear, hear a lot about in the news because it doesn't necessarily do such pretty pictures, but they, they're getting better, X-ray images. Yeah, the, the problem with X-ray images is that um, you have a very uh, low number of photons compared to using a, an optical or a visible light telescope um, or even an infrared telescope. Um, and, and so it is, um, you know, it is quite difficult to construct a meaningful picture when you've got when you've got a very low number and there's a lot of noise in them as well um, if, when you have low numbers there um, but you still it's still extremely important to the physics of any object uh, particularly cataclysmic events like supernovae um, or, or very massive things uh, like galaxy clusters and you know, there's there's a lot of X-rays out there. There's a lot of things which produce X-rays. X-rays are produced when uh, you have very hot mm-hmm. things in the universe, um, and you you can produce as well X-rays um, when you get uh, weird things happening with magnetic fields as well. Mm-hmm. Which is why you get these uh, these things from extreme events in the universe. Um, and extreme events are normally the type of things which emit in other wavebands as well. Yeah. So this this really com- does complete the f- the picture that uh, that we need when we're looking at objects in space. And this spacecraft will be complementary to ESA's XMM Newton satellite and NASA's Chandra satellite. It's newer than those, so those are both quite old satellites. But to find out a little bit more about uh, X-ray astronomy and what this mission uh, and all the others are telling us about processes in the universe. Uh, I thought it was worth going to uh, speak to someone. So I tracked down uh, Professor Chris Doan from the University of Durham, who told us all about X-ray astronomy. 
So this month saw the first light from a, a Japanese X-ray satellite called, well, I'm going to say X-RISM. We'll find out what we do uh, with that name uh, shortly. To find out about the satellite and X-ray astronomy in general, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Chris Doan from the University of Durham, also a visiting uh, scientist at the University of Tokyo. So, uh, Chris, welcome uh, to Pythagorean Astronomy. Um, let's let's start off with, the, I guess, the big question. How do you pronounce the name of the satellite? Chrism. It's Chrism. Excellent. Uh, so, uh, when said in a Japanese accent, it sounds remarkably like my name, which is Chris. So every time they say the name of the satellite, I think, me. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Always a, always a good start in a, in a meeting and a conference. Um, We've seen the first light from this uh, from this satellite, the first uh, images that have come through. It's, it's by no means the first X-ray satellite, but it's uh, the most recent uh, launch. What are we seeing in these first light images? Is there anything new in there or is this a demonstration of the satellite's capabilities? Uh, so it is a demonstration of the satellite's capabilities, but there is really new stuff in there. Uh, the satellite carries a very, very new instrument um, that is 10 times better than the best that's been flown before in terms of its spectral resolution. And that's kind of a, a, a more tricky thing to think about than, than spatial resolution. We're all used to the idea of images and better resolution, like with JWST or 30 years ago, HST, we, we all understand if you have better resolution optics for an image, you get better images, mm. and you can see the distribution of matter. But spectral resolution tells you about dynamics. It tells you how that matter is moving. And so uh, the real breakthrough instrument on this new Japanese, NASA, European satellite is that it has this amazing resolution that will really show us the dynamics of how the X-ray emitting material is moving. And, and the reason for that is that the, the light we, we think about with optical astronomy and, and with other things, we talk about this Doppler effect, this, this as, as uh, material is moving, it will change the apparent wavelength of the, of the light we receive. Uh, in, in cosmology, things are redshifted by expansion of the universe, the same, the same process essentially was stretching the wavelength of light. And, and that happens at X-rays as well, right? So it's, it's exactly, the, exactly the same. And the... Uh, in terms of the dynamics of this material, with X-ray astronomy, what are we looking at? You're you're not necessarily looking at the same kind of stuff we're looking at with optical astronomy, where you think of you know stars and gas and dust and, and so on. That, that's right. Optical astronomy, we're we're kind of used to the idea it shows us stars, um, but when you look in X-rays, you're looking at much higher energy light, much higher, um, uh, yeah, much higher energy, and so you're looking at much higher energy processes. So we're looking at, when we look at X-ray hot gas, it's incredibly hot. It's something like 10 million degrees Kelvin hot. Uh, so you have gas that's that hot, that's trapped in the gravitational potential of huge galaxy clusters, and it's glowing X-ray hot. You have gas that hot in supernova remnants, where a star has imploded under its own gravity, exploded out into interstellar space, shock waves, incredibly high energy processes in that explosion give you this X-ray hot gas. And uh, 
And with this new instrument on CRISM, we're going to be able to trace the dynamics of this X-ray hot gas that's trapped in these huge clusters of galaxies, some of the biggest structures in the universe. We're really going to see how that gas is moving and that'll tell us how it's heated um, and we'll get a lot of new science. But the one that's really much closer to my own heart and what I actually do is uh, it will show us how um, stuff is falling into black holes. So looking for a black hole on the black background of space, that's really hard. So we don't do that. Uh, we look at uh, black holes, uh, the remains of uh, dead stars that were in a binary system. So the companion star, if it's close enough, can be a source of material uh, that can fall towards the black hole event horizon. And just like hydroelectric power on Earth, when things fall under gravity, you get energy out. Only there's a lot more gravity as you're going towards the black hole. So this, this material gets heated, not just red hot, or even white hot, but X-ray hot. And so you have this glowing, intensely luminous X-ray hot disk as like a halo around the black hole, basically pointing at it, saying, no, come look at me. And, um, and so this is, is what I like to study. I like to study this X-ray hot gas that's sliding towards the black hole. And it's kind of this intensely luminous, hottest X-ray emission comes from quite close to the black hole event horizon. It's like the final scream before this material slides underneath the horizon and is lost to the universe forever. And because you said these things are so close to the, the, the black hole, they're a very small scale. They're also very, very far away, you know, hundreds, thousands of light years away, however far away. They're, they're, yeah. they're, it's not something we're going to resolve. We're not, not going to see a picture of these things for a long time, I'm guessing, because they're so small, or, or am I mistaken? Uh, well, <laughs> yes, that's very true for these um, uh, dead star black holes. But over the last five years, there's been these amazing images of the material final scream as it's heading towards the event horizon in these supermassive black holes, the one in our galaxy center and in the one in M87. And just this image of the shadow of the event horizon against the, the light from this uh, material that's in falling. Because you only see a shadow if you have a light source. Right. And it's the light source is the material that's uh, in falling close to the event horizon, its final scream before it disappears forever. So with the with the chrism and the and the new instruments, you mentioned it's got this this uh, exquisite uh, resolution in terms of its its, its spectrum. That means it can pick out the velocities that stuff is moving at um, very quickly. The other, the other, or very very accurately. The other aspect of spectrometry is that uh, we can pick out the the composition of materials by looking at, at the, sort of the spectral fingerprint of particular materials. Is that something that you can do with this? Do we learn things with with this instrument uh, in that sense? Absolutely, yes. And so the X-ray hot gas in, um, uh, that's formed in the supernovae explosions, supernovae are making all of the chemical elements, basically, 
And uh, so we can see their fingerprints in this hot gas that's produced in the supernovae explosion. And how much of each of these elements tells us a little bit more about what was going on in the core of that collapsing dying star in its final moments. Uh, and so, yes, CRISM will enable us to trace that and to really try and understand what, what the um, nuclear reaction processes, what they really were forming in those final moments of a dying star. And of course, those supernovae explosions, they smack into the interstellar medium, but they also get carried into on larger scales up into the halo of galaxies and out into the wider environment of the intracluster medium in clusters of galaxies. So by looking at these characteristic fingerprint lines, um, and we've got much more sensitivity to these small lines from elements that maybe aren't very abundant, we'll be able to track how all of these uh, elements were, were formed and how they got out into the intracluster medium. Now, in terms of astronomy, it's a relatively young field in astronomical sensors. So we've been doing optical astronomy with telescopes for a few hundred years, whereas X-ray astronomy is a few decades old in terms of, uh, of how long we've been doing it. It has the the disadvantage that it has to be done from space because our own a a atmosphere, we, I mean, thankfully, blocks X-rays. Otherwise, we'd have problems as, as human beings, uh, as, li as life on the planet. Um, but that does add its own challenges with, uh, with, with doing these observations, I guess. But the, the, when we think about X-ray astronomy these days, there's two, there's two big satellites, two big names that we often see news results from, and that's NASA's Chandra satellite and ESA's XMM-Newton satellite, both of which have been up there for, for quite a while now. plus years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So is this, is this now the new generation of, of satellites? Yes. There's been a couple more X-ray satellites, much smaller scale. Um, but Chandra and XMM-Newton, they were sort of really big uh, facilities, really big observatories that have been um, well used a lot by the community. Uh, but smaller scale missions can find their own bit of discovery space. So CRISM has this very high resolution spectrometer, which is going to take us somewhere new. Um, there was a NASA satellite launched a couple of years ago that looked at polarization of X-rays. Um, again, a much smaller scale mission, but it's got science discovery space and it's making new discoveries. So kind of targeted at one uh, a more specific yes. set of problems to, or questions to answer. Yes, that's right. So so there are there are various kind of size scales which equates to budget scales, of course, uh, of, of satellite missions, the, the really big ones, in many ways, they are very big and they cost so much, they have to be all things to all parts of the community. They have to be able to do a lot. Um, but smaller scale missions, you can have some new technology that you're trying out or you can, uh, yeah, it, it, it can be a, a, a more focused mission. And I guess you can 
you can take a, a couple of more risks or a little bit more risk with these missions in terms of, as you say, testing technologies compared with when when you've when you spent a, a billion dollars or whatever currency unit you're spending on a, on yeah. a mission. You really don't want to be taking uh, many risks. Um, That's right. I mean, space science. There will always be risk. There is always that point in time where you light the blue touch paper and you sound. Five miles away is the nearest person because if it goes wrong, it goes horribly wrong and takes most of the launch pad with it. Yeah. So, yes, space astronomy, it kind of comes with some real highs and some real lows. And uh, Charism is building on a, a bit of a low, right? Because its predecessor, was it Astro F? What was the, the satellite that was launched a few years ago? It was ago, called like, Hitomi. Hitomi, and, yeah. and it was beautiful. Uh, for three weeks, uh, um, then it, yeah, there's, um, I don't know if you've seen The Martian, which uh, was uh, made into a film starring Matt Damon, yeah. and uh, one bit at the end, he, he's talking to the next generation of, of uh, spacecraft cadets, recruits, and saying, you have to understand, space is not friendly. <laughs> And so Hitomi, Hitomi lasted a few weeks before something went wrong with the spacecraft and it and, and, and it broke up in orbit very, very sadly. So um, it's great that Chrism is, is there and it's, it's, it's working and it's, it's, it's got its first light uh, observations. Um, you mentioned it's, it, it's targeted and it's solving, a, you know, a more uh, a smaller set of problems than the, the really, really large missions. Um, what's the what's the future of X-ray astronomy? So after uh, Chrism, I don't know how long the Chrism mission is, is set to last i guess as long as it can is probably the um ah. uh, the, the idea what's the what's the future of x-ray astronomy looking like so uh i think um there's again you really want that mix you want that mix of really big facilities that can go after the faintest stuff uh we'd really like to see the the first supermassive black holes growing at the start of where galaxies are forming in the early universe, wouldn't that be spectacular? Um, and uh, to do that, we're going to, to need the big missions with the big price tags. But there always needs to be room for smaller, more focused um, new technology. Often these big missions, they have a very long lead time as well. And, and actually technology is moving really fast. So you don't really want to just be flying some tried and tested stuff. Um, but for the big missions with the big price tags, you have to have something that is really solid. Um, so to have um, a program where the smaller things you can fly that test out new technologies where, where you can do something that's a bit more responsive to new developments in the field. I mean, the next big mission I think is on the cards is Athena or New Athena now, that's which is, right. which is yes. an, an ESA, a European Space Agency mission. I mean, that was proposed um, a decade ago, right? Or yes. more, than, more than that. So as you say, long when we talk long lead times, yes. we're talking really long lead times here. Yes. But the... Uh, so some things about it haven't changed in that they uh, were saying even then, you know what, we just need a whopping great mirror. 
because we need to go, we need to be able to see further, we need to be able to see fainter um, in order to be able to see supermassive black holes growing over cosmic time, in order to see structure formation in the universe, in order to see the black holes from the material falling into them. So that's, um, that's one thing that's kind of stayed constant. We're going to need something big that can look at very faint things. Um, but within that, uh, many things have, have changed. In many ways, CRISM is kind of a pathfinder for one of the experiments, for one of the instruments on uh, New Athena. So New Athena will carry um, some kind of fairly standard detectors, but it's also going to carry some amazing spectrometer like a bit like the one that's now flying on CRISM. And if the very first time we flew a high resolution X-ray instrument was on a stonking great mirror, I mean, we'd just look at it and we'd go, oh, what is that? What are we seeing? <laughs> so we need, we need to practice. So CRISM is a smaller scale mission doesn't have huge collecting power. We can't go after really faint objects, but we can do the brightest, the nearest. We can learn how to do high resolution science. And we need the universe to teach us how it looks because sometimes it does things we don't expect. Yeah. And I think one of the, one of the, the just finally, one of the challenging things with, with these is we said, we, we can only do this in space we can't do it from beneath the earth's atmosphere and that means testing these things is hard these are not like a what you might think of as a normal telescope with a you know a nice concave mirror and then maybe a secondary mirror and so on these are these are basically particle detectors rather than telescopes i guess to some extent but they have they do have some optics but the optics is the optics really unconventional yeah but but you you know that you know if you if you break your arm and you you go and get an x-ray the x-rays go through stuff that's a problem if you're trying to focus x-rays because they have a tendency to go through the mirror. So you can't so, just reflect <laughs> them off a piece of metal because they... they yeah, so, so you have to be very, very cunning and do kind of grazing angle, slowly, slowly, slowly kind of get them focused. It's, it's, it's really different with x-rays because they go through stuff. Which is why the mirror. If you see the mirrors, they're lots of they look like lots of concentric circles as you get. Yeah, all these they look things. like they look like kind of yeah. They don't look like mirrors. They look like kind of gratings. You're going to chop some giant vegetables into interesting shapes or something. If you, yeah. Um, please yeah. don't use our X-ray telescopes for that. <laughs> um, so yeah, very very novel instrumentation uh, on on Crism uh, in in what is anywhere an, an unconventional field of of, of optics and, and so on, but has been as you say, it's been tried and tested over over the decades. Um, what should we look forward to with with? You mentioned some of the the the, the things that Crism is doing. Um, what do you think we should look forward to over the next say uh, year of the first science for for Crism? Give us some potential highlights that you're looking forward to. Oh well, I I'm really looking forward to. Uh, looking at this material sliding towards the event horizon of a black hole. Um, yes, most of the material is going in, but actually some of the material goes out. There's a wind from the outer parts of the accretion disk. And um, 
we're going to see the dynamics of that wind in much more detail than we've done before. And that's really going to tell us the physical processes about how it's launched, how it's accelerated, how, how it's getting away from a black hole. Come on, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, and that will just teach us a lot more about what can happen when you have uh, material falling towards a black hole. Um, we can scale that up, not just from these um, stellar dead star binaries that PRISM will be able to look at, but we can scale it up to the supermassive black holes in the centers of other galaxies and how these winds might actually change their whole history of star formation in a galaxy. Excellent. So uh, exciting results to look forward to on some of those most energetic processes uh, in the universe uh, with CRISM and in decades to come, uh, future satellites uh, as well. Uh, thanks very much, Professor Chris Doan from University of Durham and University of Tokyo. Thank you. That's it uh, for this month. My thanks to Professor Chris Doan and, of course, Edward Gomez. Until next month, don't forget you can find past episodes and subscribe to the podcast at pythagastro.uk or search for us on Spotify wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Pythagorean Astronomy. Until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. <laughs>